So extend your hands. Let's pray for him. Lord, we just thank you for this mighty man of God. Lord, I thank you for his father's heart. Lord, I thank you for the passion that burns within him for the city. Lord, the passion in his heart to see the church transformed. Lord, I thank you for this end-time warrior that you've equipped and trained to call sons into manhood. Lord, I just pray now that your anointing would be upon him, and as he delivers your word, that it would pierce every heart within its hearing. Lord, we just thank you and praise you for him and for his wife, it's for his ministry, and we just ask now, Lord, that we'd have hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and good morning. I said good morning. It is a grand and glorious morning, and I am so honored and thrilled to be here and thankful to the Lord for the opportunity. And I'm not here just because I was invited, even though I'm glad that I was invited. But it's important to know that apostolic ministry is sent ministry, not invited ministry. And back, I don't know, maybe six months ago, Pastor Tim asked me to come and share with your ministry training class here. Uh, and while I was here those couple of hours or so, the Lord deposited a word in my spirit for this house. And I didn't tell Pastor Tim. I didn't tell Pastor Ron. I didn't tell anybody. I fig- figured when it's time, the Spirit of God would unleash it. That day has come. And I really sense this has tremendous prophetic implications, not just with this house corporately, though it, though it does, but also to your life personally. And I know that whenever God looks for someone to use, he never looks for me. He looks for himself in me. He can only use me to the extent he can find himself in me. So there's a death process that goes on with all of us, meaning we die to our own aspirations and things we want to accomplish with our lives and what we're going to decide to do with our life. The reality is it's not my job or your job to decide what we're going to do with our lives. It's our job to discover what God already decided. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So what that really means is uh, God chose you, God chose me before the world ever was. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost conferred and decided you would be born and literally timed your birth. That's why you weren't born in 1612, why God didn't need you in 1612. You weren't born in 1711, why? God didn't need you in 1711. He literally timed your birth and decided when you were needed in the earth. And the Bible says he puts us in the body as it pleases him. So you don't even decide what church you're going to go to. You decide or you discover what he decided. So he divinely placed you here. Now, what is God up to with all of that? God always has a plan. Everything God does, it's a part of the overall plan that he has for our lives. And sometimes things happen that get us away from the plan. God never panics. He doesn't freak out. doesn't say, oh, no, we didn't plan for that one. He works in all the dumb stuff that goes on in our lives. And you know dumb stuff happens in our lives. Don't give me that no dumb stuff look. You know what I'm talking about. Things go on that mistakes, blunders, sin, 
failure, setbacks, distractions, all kind of things happen. And what God does is he works that all into his plan. That's what Romans 8, 20 is really all about. And we know that all things work together for the good to them who love God and to them who are the called according to his purpose. So it's incumbent upon you and I not to decide about our lives, but to discover what he already decided. That being said, today is a divine appointment. I'm honored to be here. I thank God for your pastor, Pastor Tim and um, Pastor Ron. They're good friends, and we pray together and confer a lot. And I'm thankful to God to have my, my wife, my bride of 39 years with me today. And hallelujah. And she might prophesy at any moment, so be prepared just in case. <laughs> I'm also honored to have some of the, I do a Bible study on Monday nights in Gross Point. I've been doing it for the last, I don't know, six years or so. And uh, some of those people are here who are part of that Bible study. The host are here. We have it in their home. So thank you all for coming. God bless you all. Ray and Benita. Monsanto. Now, are you ready? Look me over real good, and I want you to make up in your mind you love me. And during the course of this message, you'll have to remind yourself, I really do love him. Because I may say some things that are somewhat unsettling, may say some things that are somewhat challenging to the way you think. Because we have a real dilemma right now in the body of Christ. Somehow, some way, we have drifted away from the essence of, of what God's original intent and plan was for his church. And the church is becoming something other. We're blending into the culture and the society and what is the going thing around us um, and adapting to that and becoming more like the very things we're called to change. We're called to be light. We're called to be salt. But somehow the light seemingly is losing um, its capacity to dispel darkness. Uh, and sometimes the, the salt is losing its savor. And the church is blending in with mixture of philosophies, ideologies, and concepts that are not congruent with what thus says the Lord. So there has to be a raising up, a raise, hear this real good, of authentic biblical Christianity. We have people that call themselves, quote-unquote, Christians, whatever that means these days to people. But we've got to be, be real disciples, real sons. Now, why is this so important? We have a trend happening right now in the body of Christ that is causing people to compromise and to try to blend in. And we're being victimized by certain terms like, you know, compelling state interest or tolerance and trying to make sure that we're really operating in love so that we can receive everything, everyone, everybody, every philosophy and still call ourselves the holy church, the set-apart church. In the Bible, it does not work that way. But there's this blend. I don't know if you realize this, but one of the top Christian books that was sold last year uh, in this country was a book called Love Wins by Rob Bell. 
And in that book, it's full of heresy, by the way, but in that book, he talks about that there really isn't a hell as we would know hell. And he also presents a universal salvation, basically saying everybody's going to be saved because if God is so loving, and he uses scripture like, you know, here's how the thinking goes. If God is so loving, and the Bible says he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come into knowledge of the, Son of, of, of the Son of God, then why would he send anybody to hell? Really? There is no hell. Really? Everybody's going to be saved. So that mindset has filtered over into the church where there's like, like this universal salvation. Well, what do you do with Matthew chapter 7? When Jesus says... Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And then he said, only a few find it. So what we have are people that we think are saved that never had a true, radical, biblical salvation. And there's been just a lack of teaching on what real doctrinal salvation looks like. There are four components to a biblical doctrinal salvation number one regeneration number two justification number three sanctification number four glorification so when you get saved you are regene your spiritual dna is radically changed and you take on the character of the one who redeemed you jesus christ our lord when that happens you immediately justify or just as if i never sin. And because you've been justified, now you are sanctified, meaning you are set apart from the world. And when that happens, uh, the glory of the Lord radiates from your very being. If you had brown eyes, you still got brown eyes. If you had black hair, you still have black hair. But there's something about your countenance, your persona changes by virtue of the glory of the Lord. Well, that is a biblical salvation. You don't work for it. You don't try to be good at two shoes to get it done. The work was done 2,000 years ago at Calvary. For by grace are you saved through faith. So when we understand this concept, salvation is not just fire insurance. At least I'm not going to hell. It's really about becoming so like him, so infused with his character, so full of his love that everywhere you go, you impact the region. You impact the area. You impact every place you go because greater is he who's in you than he who is in the world. So we have to raise up authentic churches. An authentic church is a transformational church. What that means is this. This church has experience of the glorious transformation its members has in their personal lives, and because they have been transformed, are being transformed, and will be transformed, they are empowered to transform their community, transform their neighborhoods, transform their city, transform the world. A church like that is a marked church. And what we have, what churches do now and how they function now, and I, please don't get mad at me for saying this, we don't look like the Bible anymore. We look like culturized, Americanized Christianity. And we serve God based upon convenience. What works for me? 
lot of people call themselves Christians. It's not by conviction. It's by preference. I prefer to be a Christian and not a Buddhist. I prefer to be a Christian and not a Muslim. I prefer to be a Christian and not a Hare Krishna. I kind of like the music of Christianity. I like the way people are. And I, I, that just works better for me. That is not a conviction. In 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court in a case of Wisconsin versus Yoder, one of the justices wrote his analysis of this case, his opinion of this case. And it was really challenging what the court sees based upon the Constitution as religion that they can back. What that means is this. Part of what people say is their religion is based on their preferences, not their convictions. So a ruling came down. In this ruling, I can't, because I can't go through all the whole ruling, but they had six components um, that identified and substantiated a religion based on conviction and not preference. And one of those was this. You are willing to stand alone, meaning I'm going to stand on this if no one stands with me. I don't care if the whole world goes straight to hell. I believe this. I stand on this. Come hell or high water, that's where I'm standing. Now, they also said, they also said, you are willing to die for this conviction. You are so committed to this, uh, you'll put your life on the line for it. They also said uh, it is a non-negotiable principle. You don't base it on, uh, well, if they did this, then maybe I'll go this way. No, it is non-negotiable. They also said you are willing, please get this part, you are willing to sacrifice everything for this. Well, that's not where most Christians are. We have a brand of Christianity that's not in the Bible. Remember the Bible? Hello, remember the Bible? The B-I-B-L-E, basic instruction before leaving earth. We got to get people back to the word of God and get a biblical worldview where you see everything in the world through the lenses of the scripture, not the lenses of Americanism, not the lenses of culture, not the lenses of anything else. Why? The Bible says in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven, not Detroit, not America, heaven. Now, what does that really mean? Well, the Greek word for citizenship is the word polytuma in the book of Philippians. We get our word uh, politics from that word. So what it's really saying to us, we get our political framework, our political agenda emanates from the very throne of God. Not from Washington, D.C., not from Lansing, not from Mackinac Island. They had all the policymakers up there trying to figure out what's going to happen in our state and our country. we got to get the church on fire for God, full of the anointing, full of the word of God, and willing to lay down their lives for this great gospel that we preach. Now, we got to find out what people really believe. People who say they're Christians don't embrace the full counsel of God. We pick and choose because we almost act like it's a cafeteria. You know when you go to a, to a smokers or a cafeteria type restaurant, you can get your tray, and you go through the line, and you pick and choose what you want. 
um, give me some of those. Give me, give me some of the ham. Give me some macaroni and cheese. No asparagus for me. No, 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 no. No, no okra. I hate okra. And people pick. So they come to church with a, a mentality, a consumer's mentality, like we can pick and choose what we want to believe. That's not a conviction. So the church has adapted to Americanize, culturize Christianity. So what happens is this. Churches come, we've got to tailor make this service where it's palatable to the average comer. The average comer could be carnal. So what we have is a carnal church. The average comer could be worldly. What we have is a worldly church. The average comer is prayerless. So we have is a prayerless church. So God has to raise up a church that is a model for what he's after. That would be you. Part of my assignment is to encourage you in the things you already know. Christ Community Church, do you really know who you are? Do you really understand why this church has to be here and why you've been placed here by God? It's not by accident. It's not by preference. It's not by choice. You're operating under a divine mandate. And God will use a church like this with people that look very nice. But I can look at you in the spirit. Why? I prayed for this church this morning. And as I was praying, the Holy Ghost started to show me things about you. Many have come in with scars. You've come through hard times and damage and situations that were demeaning to you and insults and being abandoned and fighting through alcoholism and drugs and family breakdown. Understand something on Calvary's tree. When our Lord has been beaten, bloody, we just partook of the Lord's table. And I'm sure, I'm sure you've seen pictures of Jesus with little blood here and little blood there and a couple wounds. It was nothing like that. They beat our Lord to a bloody pulp. His visage didn't even look like a human being. They beat him, slapped him, sped upon him, put a crown of thorns in his. You ever got your finger stuck in one thorn in a rose garden uh, uh, bush, and then all of a sudden blood gushes out? What if you had hundreds of them plunge into your skull? And he's hanging there, hung up for your hang-ups. And there are two thieves on each side. And one of them is cursing him. And the other one said, man, my God, man, don't you know who this is? Then he says something very interesting. Lord, when you come into your kingdom, watch this. Remember me. He wasn't just saying, don't forget about me. Remember. Why? Crucifixion was designed to dismember the human anatomy. It was designed slowly, painfully, gruesomely to dismantle the human anatomy. So here's a man who's being dismembered. And he said, Lord, remember, put me back together again. And I want you to know today, that's what God has done in your life. Even when it seemed like things were going bad, he's put your life back together again. Why? He's got something he's deposited in you. Do you really know who you are? Years ago, a movie came out called Taken. It was about an especially highly trained 
espionage CIA agent who had retired early to relocate in the area where his daughter and ex-wife were living because he wanted to be near his daughter during her teen years and be involved with her life. And he, when he went there, unbeknownst to him, she'd already planned a trip to Europe with her girlfriend. And this man was highly skilled in martial arts and highly skilled in, in dealing with uh, uh, explosives and, and firearms and spying and technology. He was highly skilled. And he reluctantly consented for his daughter to take this trip overseas. And when she went, immediately they were scoped, her and her girlfriend, by the underground sex slave trade in Europe and found out where they were staying and invaded uh, the apartment they were staying in. It was like a large uh, villa area. And she was on the phone talking with their fa her father when these guys came in the room and they took her friend. She could see across the, uh, the court, she was in the bathroom talking to her father, and they came into the, another room and she saw through the window them take her friend. And she says, oh my God, there's someone here. And they've taken Amanda immediately because he knows the world well what was going on he tells her go into the next room go into a bedroom get under the bed and tell me everything you see and everything you hear so she goes on in the next room she's underneath the bed and they come in the in the room where she was um, and then they left she thought but seconds later they snatched her and she's screaming and drops her phone, let me go, let me go, let me go. But they take her. And she drops her phone. One of them picks up the phone. And her father on the other end could hear him breathing. And he says to him, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If it's money, I don't have any. But what I do have is a certain set of skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. Now, if you let my daughter go, there will be no questions asked. But if you take her, I will come after you. I will find you, and I will kill you. How could he just say that? Because he knew he had skills. I'm here to let you know there's an attack of the wicked one to take a generation you know who he is you know what he's after and you have the skills to go after him and break his power not just in this community in the region in the state in the world a transformational church is filled with people like that so your assignment should you choose to accept it is to utilize the skills, the treasure that God's put in you. Because when he sent you from heaven, he sent you with certain skills on the inside of you. That's why the apostle Paul said, um, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. There's a deposit of God in you that is untapped. So many people are not operating in their fullest potential. They do a little bit here for God, a little bit there, a little here over here. Do you know what the word potential means? It has many meanings. The scariest one you probably won't like. The scariest one is this, the word potential means. Not now, 
maybe never. In other words, unless you tap into certain things now, you'll never fulfill your potential. That's why the richest ground in the world is not the gold mines. It's not the oil fields. The richest ground in the world is the cemetery where people have been buried with unfulfilled purpose, unfulfilled potential, unfulfilled destiny. And a transformational church is designed to get everything out of you that God put in you. When I die, I want to die empty. I gave it everything I had. I dispensed all the anointing, all the grace, all the gift. I am ready to go because I have emptied myself. So as a transformational church... You have to know the implications of this. Most churches start off on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock sharp, and they end at 12 o'clock dull. There is no platform for the Holy Spirit to move. There is no manifestation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There's no prophetic anointing. There's no real worship. That's why I appreciate your worship team, because there's a tapping into worship that goes beyond emotion and feeling. Now, I'm not putting emotion and feeling down, but they that worship him must worship him. How? And then, so you need the spirit of truth, who's the Holy Spirit, to, to usher you into that. So as they were worshiping this morning, in both the earlier service and this service, uh, there was a worship anointing. It's important to know that praise and worship are not the same thing. Worship demands some things of you that praise does not. Praise is out of court. Creation can praise him. But to worship him, worship puts a demand on every fiber of your being. Worship goes beyond your style. It's not based on a style. Well, I worship in this style. Well, I worship this way. Whenever you worship your own way, it ceases to be worship. The only way to worship the Father is in spirit and in truth. Now, this is something I didn't share in the earlier service. No charge. Just, I think you need to hear this. I want you to get this. The reason this worship thing is so essential for you this church. There's a corporate anointing in this house that's related to your pastor. There's a worship anointing on him. I visit churches a lot. And I came here some time ago, I think when Bishop Jackson was here. And when I go to other churches a lot, I preach around different churches apostolically. A lot of pastors, they don't worship. Their people worship, some of them. But they don't, they, they're into the, you know, the service, how things are going, the order, the structure, the offering, uh, to make sure the deacons know what they're supposed to be doing. They're so encumbered with other things, they don't tap into worship. Your pastor is a worshiper. You do realize that. Now, why is that so important? Why did God, Jesus say the Father is seeking for worshipers? In heaven, there were three angels that were named by name. There were other angels, even other angels by name, but there are three major angels that were named by name, okay? One of them, his name was Gabriel. Gabriel was the word-bearing angel. You can see his name used to bring a message throughout the Old Testament, even in the, in the New Testament, in the four Gospels with Mary. Gabriel is a word-bearing angel. The second is mentioned by name is Michael. 
Michael is the warring angel. When Michael shows up, he never comes to see how's the wife and kids doing. Uh, how's everybody doing? What's up, y'all? How y'all feeling? When Michael shows up, it's Fist City. When Michael shows up, somebody's behind is in serious trouble. Michael is the warring angel. The third angel was Lucifer. Lucifer, the Bible describes him in Ezekiel 28, also in Isaiah chapter 14. He was the most anointed cherub that covereth. He didn't go and play instruments. He actually played instruments in him. Ezekiel 28 describes the instruments in him. He didn't have to go to drums and guitars and keyboards. They were all in him. He was drop dead, gorgeous to look at. There was nothing and no one on his level. He could sing. He led the angelic host in worship. He had the worship anointing. There was nothing on his level and gorgeous to look at doing it. But the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 14, iniquity, which means self-will, by the way, was found in him. Five times he said, I'm going to exalt my throne. I'm going to be like the most high God. I'm going to sit up there with him. Look at me. I'm gorgeous. I'm wonderful. Look at all these angels are with me. Hey, I ought to be up there with you. And God is like, what? Are you serious? God didn't fight the devil and kick him out. God's too awesome to fight with his own creation. God doesn't fight. There's nothing equal with God. There's nothing and no one on his level face to face with him. I am the Lord thy God. Beside me, there is no other. Jesus didn't kick him out of heaven. Jesus said he saw it. He did say he saw it. In Luke 10, he said, I saw Satan fall how fast as lightning. I mean, this happened real quick. This wasn't no eventually. This is like. You got to go. I believe Michael, because we can see a biblical pattern where Michael did fight Satan and did fight against the prince of Persia. We have documentation of that in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. So we know Michael has fought him and warred against him, Revelation 12. So I believe Michael stepped up, up on him. You got to go. I got orders from headquarters you out of here. And he was kicked out of heaven. Now get this. Where did he go? You notice it never says he ended up on Mars. Never said he ended up on, I don't know, Venus or Uranus or Jupiter. They say Pluto isn't even a planet even on the solar system, but Pluto, none of them. He ended up on Earth. Why? Because God knew you'd be here. Your assignment, should you use to accept, choose to accept it, is to torment him. Oh, you had it wrong. You thought his job was to torment you. No, your job is to torment him. That's your assignment. Drive him crazy. Now, how does that work? How does that look? Jesus said the Father is seeking for what? True worshipers. Why is that so important? Well, the word angel, Gabriel, is still in his place. He hasn't left that. The warring angel, Michael, is still in his place. 
that position is still filled. But the worshiping angel Lucifer is no longer there. So the father is seeking, searching, trying to find, looking for true worshipers. And I believe the Holy Spirit has found them at Christ Community Church because there's something about worship that transforms you. Something about worship changes you. When you get into worship, you are changed from glory to glory by the Spirit of our God. Now, as a transformational church, you have certain assignments that relates to different people here based upon your gift mix, your callings. You've got to make your calling and your election sure. You've been assigned to this church to tap into the vision, and the vision will energize the giftings and the callings of God upon your life. All of that was introduction. Look in Isaiah 62. The transformational church. I'm having problems with my uh, iPad. I didn't bring my hard, hard copy notes, all of them. So I have to look up here. If you can go to verse 10. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Take out the stones. Lift up a banner for the peoples. Oh, thank you. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world. Say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call them, what them? Those that he's just got done speaking of in verse 10 and 11. The holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. You shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. Now, in these verses is five transformational strategies. I want to look at them as it relates to this church and your role. Thank you, sir. Your role as an individual. And how does that work? There are five transformational strategies. The first one, strategy number one, is you've got to go through the gates. These gates are the gates of the Lord. That's mentioned in Psalm 118, verses 19 and 20. Also, Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10, that deals with the messianic gates. And in Psalm 24, it really talks about Jesus after defeating Satan, making an open shore of principalities and powers, and he's ascending on high. And as he's ascending back to the Father, back to heaven, he cries out to heaven's gates. And the Messianic Psalm, Division 24, speaks of this. He says, open up, ye everlasting doors, and be ye lifted up, ye gates. And the response from heaven's gates was, who? What? Open up, ye everlasting doors. Open up ye gates, and the king of glory will come in. The response was, who is this king of glory? And he said, the Lord mighty in battle. 
You've got to understand the nature of warfare. The very fact that you being who you are in the kingdom of God denotes opposition because Satan is the God of this world. Satan has his own church. Oh, yeah. Satan has his own apostles. The apostle Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He has his own apostles. You want to know who some of Satan's apostles are? I'm going to tell you anyway whether you want to know it or not. It would be good if you said, yeah, hey man, I want to know. <laughs> that would help. I don't Oh, he has his own apostles. People like Larry King. People like Oprah Winfrey. Do you realize probably his most powerful apostle is Oprah Winfrey? People don't even know the real, have an understanding of the dynamic of how she got credit. And I love Oprah. Don't misunderstand. I'm not an Oprah basher. But I see things by the spirit. Not by the natural, not by skin color, not by because I like people. Based upon the spirit. And I, I remember over the years watching her. She'd make statements like, people be on, be on talking about child rearing and the importance of uh, raising children properly in our culture and society today. I remember one year that she was doing this show about this and a lady got up who's a Christian and said, you know what? I just believe what the Bible says about how we should raise children. And the Bible's real clear about beating or spanking a child. We have to love and we have to uh, uh, administer corporal punishment. And Oprah went off on her. She said, That's, no one believes that anymore. No one embraces that anymore. So what she's done, she's created this cultural religious cult that has gotten so powerful the tentacles are so broad, it hits every sphere, but it does it in such a harmless way. It's, it, it appears like, who could be against? She's helping people. She's helping the children in Africa have a school. She helps the people starving in third world countries. She's a philanthropist. But I don't know, maybe Jesus was right. When he said, many shall come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord. Have we not done this in your name and done that in your name? And the Lord's response is, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, self-will. Watch this next part. He said, I never knew you. He didn't say, you know, I once knew. We once were homies, once hung out together. We were really cool, but you drifted away. No, no, no. I never knew. You thought you knew me, but I never knew you. So we have people today that have never had an authentic relationship who called themselves Christians with a risen Savior. Now, let's go deeper. What the church has been victimized by is a secularized, humanistic Christianity that's designed to be universal and to fit into our culture and our society and touch everybody. And if you don't adhere to that, uh, you're viewed as intolerable, a hater, and even when it comes to politics. I didn't mean to go here. God. You all are making me do this. Lord, they're making me. I wasn't going to do this. I was going to be a good boy, but no. What we have are Christians trying to appeal to the masses and align with philosophical and political views that are not consistent with what thus says the Lord. Don't forget our citizenship, 
our political agenda, our political framework comes from heaven, not Democrat or Republican. We don't follow. We don't follow the donkey. We don't follow the elephant. We follow the lamb who turns into the lion of the tribe of Judah. So we will not compromise our convictions to fit into a party. Because the Holy Ghost is going to throw a party, a real party. And I want to be at that party. And I'm, I'm kind of doing a, myth, a play with words here on party, but you get the point. And what we have are Christians trying to fit in. This is the most difficult election, as was the most pivotal election in the history of our country. I've got to ask, where is God in all of this? Do you think God is bringing us to a place of desperation for him? Do you think God can put such a demand on his people that we've gotten so lackadaisical? I didn't realize it was that bad here, but when I go to other countries, I spent a week in Taiwan a couple months ago, and that, uh, this, I was in Taipei City, and it's a predominantly Buddhist religious culture there. And the Christians there are surrounded by Buddhism. They came, most of them came out of Zen Buddhism, and when I, go vis- I visited four churches and spoke in them, the people were fervent. The people were, had a zeal for God. In prayer, everybody cried out to God with all of their strength. I got video footage of it on my iPad. In praise and worship, they're all clapping, shouting, dancing. They're sweating, but they're so into it. Why? Because they recognize what God brought them out of. They're surrounded with paganism. They're surrounded with false religion. So here in America, we've gotten kind of ho-hum, lackadaisical. We're in a Christian company, a country, oh, really? We're becoming something else other. I have a document here of the prayers of our forefathers, speeches of our forefathers, things they said about this country, reverencing God, acknowledging the absolute Lordship of Jesus Christ. And if God isn't over this country, we're in big trouble. Guess what, folks? We're losing that. So God, I think, is allowing some of this stuff to go on to wake up the church. If my people, which are called by my name, would humble themselves. Whoa, God isn't going to humble us. Well, I shouldn't say that. If we refuse to humble ourselves, he will. That's not what he wants to do. If you look in the Bible, repeatedly, he wants you and me to humble ourselves. But if you force his hand, and make him humble you, you're going to be eating some serious humble pie for a long time. To some extent, that's what's happening in America. Our choices for president this year, can we talk? Is someone who's a leader in a cult, See, Mormonism is a cult. People don't like to talk about this, but ask me if I care. I don't care about telling the truth. Mormonism is not a false religion. Islam, Buddhism, those are false religions. The difference is cults recognize Jesus Christ. The church of our Lord Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's a cult. And not only they're cult, they're cursed. So how can you say that? I don't know, maybe Galatians chapter 1. Paul put it this way. He said, if anybody comes to you 
and preaches any other gospel than what I preach to you, let him be a curse. You know what's crazy? The next verse, he says the exact same thing. Nowhere else in the Bible do you see that. So this is serious. So we have, as our choice, the, a leader of a cult, the other choice. And I love the president. I had so many mixed feelings and emotions because I, I was glad that this country was in a position to elect a black president. But beyond emotion and feeling, my conviction rose up. And I, I'm only moved by the conviction. Feelings come and go. But convictions ground you. Convictions center you. Convictions are the platform for your core values. And I have a conviction about when life begins. I have a conviction about the institution of marriage and the family. So when my president, whom I love and pray for, I'm not an Obama basher. I love the president. I just viciously, violently disagree with him in the spirit. Now, what does that mean? The Bible says the kingdom is suffering violence. And this is my timer going off. You know you are out of God's will. You are so out of God's will. I rebuke you. Can I have just a little more time, Pastor Ron? Just a little more time. Can I just, I know y'all, you know. What was the point I was making? Oh, I love our president. But you have to understand the dynamic of what's happening in our country. And there is a liberal movement that has different streams to it. And these streams are are expanding exponentially, and most Christians don't even know what's going on. You ever heard of something called the Burning Man? You ever heard of the Burning Man? One, two, three. It's, the, it's one of the fastest, more intense liberal movements in America. Almost no Christians ever heard of it. But they get together in the desert, tens of thousands of them, and they freak out, and it's basically to, to confer about their agenda, what they want to see change in America, and they want to be free and liberated. They walk around naked. They do drugs. They get high. And people who are policy makers go here. People that make the movies you watch go there. People that, that form and frame education policy in this country. That's where, where they go. And they freak out for a week. At the end of the week, Google Burning Man when you get a chance. They lift up this image of a man and they set him on fire and worship him. It's idolatry. It's one of the fastest growing movements in our country, and almost no Christian even knows what's going on. So we, we can't be ignorant of Satan's devices. And we have to raise up a standard. So we have to know, and when we come out of this place of warfare and worship and the presence of the Lord from the gates of heaven, what do we deal with once we get there? What that means is this. We have not infiltrated the marketplace with God's power, God's grace, God's mercy, and God's love to the extent that it radically impacts the culture. We have a few Christians out there in the marketplace doing a few things, and I'm not minimizing that or think that's, no, not enough. I'm, what I'm saying is there's got to be a whole lot more. So God has to raise up a church like this one 
that has leaders with different backgrounds and anointings and giftings uh, to hear a message like this uh, to get in your stuff, to get in your grill, to stir you up, uh, to ignite you with the fire of God in your belly, to go into your sphere, and you have a sphere. There's an area that you've been called to to influence. Uh, You may think it's small, but let me tell you something. In heaven's economy, it is huge. If it's just five people whose lives you'll impact, that's enough to get started. What if someone had gotten to President Obama with the gospel of the kingdom when he was at Harvard or in high school and radically changed his life to the extent where he was discipled in the word of God? He never would have ended up in a church like Jeremiah writes. And I'm not bashing anybody. What I am doing is presenting you truth. Now, why is this important? Jesus said in John chapter 8, you will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. In that context, he said, make you free. The Greek word for make and the Greek word for free in that verse are the same words. According to the Strong's Concordance and Divines. The Greek word for make and the Greek word for free is the same word. What he's really saying is, you get the truth, you're a made man. Get the truth. You're a made woman. You know, I'm a connoisseur of, this is one of my weaknesses, of Godfather mafia-type movies. When you were a made man, no one could mess with you. Once you get made, you can't touch this. God said, touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. And God is saying to you, you get the truth, he cannot touch you. The problem is uh, people don't have the truth. So they they succumb to the lie. And the lies have infiltrated the church to the extent. And and it's infiltrated different segments of the church different ways. What I mean by that is this. In the Caucasian predominantly church, uh, it's been an inundation of secular humanism. In the black church, it's been that to some degree, but it's been cloaked in uh, black liberation theology. A man named James Cone in 1970 came out with a book on this, and it has been standardized training in theological training centers and seminaries and Bible colleges all over America. So they come out with a teaching and a philosophy and a ministry based more on the social aspect and not the spiritual aspect. It's more about skin and less about sin. So it's all about getting, loving people, helping them do better, and it's a social gospel. So people come to church and feel good about themselves and never have gotten saved, never had a radical encounter with the risen Savior, never experienced authentic biblical Christianity. So what has happened to black church, we tried to make it fit into the civil rights movement. And tried to make God fair. God never said he was fair. The last thing you need is a fair God. That's what you don't want is God to be fair. That's what you don't need is a fair God. If God was fair, then you'd get what you deserve. Never pray and ask God, I just want what's coming to me. No, you don't. No, you don't. Lord, I just want my just to. No, you don't. That's a dumb prayer. You don't want that. 
If God was fair, he never would have sent the lamb without spot to die for a sinful world. He's just, and he's always right, but he's not fair. So we tried to fit God into the civil rights movement and make him fit. He's too big. Who he is is too broad. His sphere is too magnificent to fit into one scope of how people think. So we have to enlarge ourselves on the bigness, the vastness, the awesomeness of our God. God is so awesome, he has the capacity to love people when they are unlovely. When the Bible says God is love, what does that really really mean? Think about this. The Bible says a lot of things that God is. It says God is righteous. Hey, folks, God can be righteous by himself. He doesn't need you. The Bible says God is omnipotent. God can be omnipotent without you. He doesn't need you for that. The Bible teaches that God is all-knowing, meaning he's omniscient. He does not need you to be omniscient. The Bible says God is holy. God can be holy by himself. He doesn't need you to be holy. But watch this. When the Bible says God is love, uh-oh, uh-oh, love must have an object. Love must have a place it's heading towards. No one can say, I just love. Love who? Love what? I don't, I just, I don't know. I just love. Love what? What do you love? I don't know. I just love. No, love has an object. Love is always going somewhere. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So this is the one thing God cannot be by himself. He had to have you as an object. The reason is essential. As we're facing this world that opposes our God, the spirit of the Antichrist has laced our culture. Philosophical views and mindsets have infiltrated our culture to the extent that we hardly ever hear people being very strong in the marketplace concerning their faith. But God's love is the key for us and how we respond to them. We can't get a spirit of anger and bitterness and, oh, I just don't like those ungodly people. We must love the people that Jesus died for. Meaning, even though my president supports gay marriage, I hate gay marriage because I hate what God hates. God hates sin. Homosexuality is a sin in the Bible. But I love the people who participate in it. I love them so much. I see them through the lenses of Calvary. And as Jesus hung on that cross and this blood is flowing, for them it's really saying this blood, not this blood, this blood's for you. This blood's for you. He died for them. So I've got to love who he loves and hate what he hates. Most Christians don't think like that. So it's hindered our capacity. We're so busy in being strong in what we're against. No one knows what we're for. We're so against this and against that, and I resent that. I don't like that, and I don't believe that. Okay, but we can do that in the spirit of hatred. Or in the spirit of love. Most people in the media who are Christians, you don't sense that love. Not all, most. There are some that you do. But what I'm saying is we need more of that. 
differentiate. Think about this. Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples based upon what? Love one for another. If we have that love one for another, then it's going to impact those who are watching us. Now, let's go a little bit deeper. I'm going to hit these other strategies real quick. The second one, number two, and my time is up. I'm going to hit these real fast, is prepare the way for the people. This word prepare means to turn to, to turn from, or to turn away. And it has other meanings. I have them listed up there. And we have to be real clear about preparation, preparing people to experience God, God's glory. Your prayer, your intercession, your worship is a part of that. One of the ways God prepared his people in the Old Testament was the blast of the trumpet. We're not going to turn it because of time, but Exodus chapter 19, verses 10 through 19 talks about this. And God gave Moses instruction to release real loud the blast of the trumpet. One of the reasons we named our church Jubilee City Church, the word Jubilee is the Hebrew word Yobo. And Yobo means the blended blast of the trumpet. I mean, not just one trumpet, it's a blended sound of trumpets. And it's loud, it's bold, it arrests the atmosphere. And what I'm saying to you is a, a transformational church has that loud, I don't mean loud in the natural, but loud in the spirit. Where when you, when you speak, your voice is heard in the heavenlies. A lot of the stuff we're dealing with right now, the deeper the problems we're facing are rooted in spiritual things, not natural things. Meaning... Let me talk about this a little bit. Let's just talk about what's happening in Detroit right now. Detroit is in dire straits in so many ways. I can't get into it right now, but Detroit was discovered by a man named Antoine de Lamont Cadillac, who got here in 1701 and actually named the city because he was a Frenchman. And that's why there's a lot of, lot of streets, especially on the east side, that are named after Frenchmen or have French words like Cadju, Gratiot. St. Antoine, Detroit is the French word Detroit, and it literally means the straits. And he landed in the part that was closest in the straits between the shores of, of the USA and the shores of Canada. And it's near what is now the Veterans Memorial Building right near Cobo Hall. It was near there. And he set up camp there. And other things were going to happen after that, but not a few years later, in June, I think it was June the 5th, 1705 was our first murder. Father Dahali, a priest, was murdered near downtown Detroit. So the spirit of homicide is released. He came here as a commoner, presented himself as a nobleman, exchanged a trade with the Indians that we call Native Americans today, exchanged trade with them. He gave them liquor. They became alcoholics. They gave him furs. He became wealthy. And his name is Cadillac. Most prestigious automobile made in our city is named in his honor. So the spirit of manipulation, control, domination, usury, all was released. The Bible says the curse causeless shall not come. So there has to be a preparing a way for the people. Number three, third strategy, build up the highway. This notes a prophetic pathway that leads to a higher level of living. People have to get out of the low way of living and thinking to a higher level that relates to God's presence, God's glory, God's kingdom value system. And this is called in Isaiah 35, verses 8 through 10, the highway of holiness. Number four, the fourth strategy, 
Remove the stones. What does that mean? These are stumbling blocks. This notes that which would cause God's people to stumble, to trip, to get stuck between a rock and a hard place. This is described in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And what we have are people who get stuck in situations in life, in relationships, in financial struggles, in bad experiences uh, uh, in their career and or business. And they, and they never succumb, or they never come out of that. They end up succumbing to it repetitively and going through cycles of failure, cycles of discouragement, cycles of struggling with depression, oppression, because they seemingly can't move their lives along because they never remove the stumbling blocks. You have to ask yourself, what kind of things have distracted me, hindered me, that caused me to stumble, to trip, to lose my momentum, to lose my way? There has to be a removal of that. Are there people in your life that drain you spiritually? Are there people in your life that distract you and you keep the same thing happen over and over and over again? There's a way to love people but not let them use you. When loving them is hurting you, it becomes problematical. I wish I had time to go deeper with that one. The last one, the last strategy is raise up the standard. The present-day transformational church will lift up a standard or a banner for every sphere of our culture, education, politics, business, and commerce, media, technology, entertainment, music, every sphere of culture. And you've been sent to this church to be trained in good sound doctrine. You've been sent to this church uh, to be developed uh, concerning the destiny of God, the call of God upon your life. Because you're about to go to places uh, you've never been before. As a transformational church, uh, you're always going through transition. Now get this. Transition will always produce a degree of turbulence in your life. So when things are seemingly topsy-turvy or issues or problems uh, Don't get discouraged. Don't let that be a setback. You keep plowing. You keep pushing. You keep praying. You keep fasting. You keep prophesying. Because God is taking you somewhere. He sent you here for a reason. Now, this is one of those few balanced churches I get to come to. What does that mean? We have extremes in the body of Christ. You have your word churches. And they are the word, the word, the word. Greek, Hebrew, what thus says the Lord. And they are, I'm not putting them down, but they're just word. On the other end of the spectrum, you have your spirit churches. Oh, glory. They want to shout and dance and leap and run and shout. And I'm all for that. But if all you have is word, 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 you're going to dry up. If all you have is spirit, 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 you're going to blow up. But if we can somehow find a church, and that would be you, that have a blend of word and spirit, you will grow up. And that's what's going on with you right now. 
Every time you come to Bible study, every time you come to a service, every time you gather with the saints of God, whether it's in a home or here in the, in the, in the corporate gathering, you're growing exponentially. You're increasing in knowledge. You're learning more and more about what thus says the Lord, how to walk in the spirit, how to see things by the spirit, how to overcome the things in your life that could be a distraction to you. We all have areas that have been distractions to us because we got to deal with these. I'm going to Grand Rapids, Michigan, Wednesday morning on that first one. I'm called to the Education Mountain. Not the only one, but one of my major callings deals with education. And I'm going to talk to the powers that be who actually approve charter schools at Grand Valley State University to present to them a plan that will revolutionize education in this state. I mean revolutionize it. One of the things I'm going to say, I'm giving you previews of coming attractions. The three new R's of education, I'm not putting down reading, writing, and as they say, arithmetic. But the three new R's of education, number one, is relevance. Education in America is no longer relevant to where children's lives are at. I didn't realize it was that bad until I opened up, in 1996, I opened up a charter school named Colin Powell Academy. And I had no idea what I was walking into. The degradation of what has happened to families. Most of the children there had no father in their home. So they start calling me dad. And when I see some of them, some of them are adults who started off, started off in the upper grades with us, uh, they call me dad to this day. Because they've never known a real father who would love them, raise them, nurture them, give them the truth. They've never known that. And the, the conditions that these children lived in, in order for them to do well on tests, a standardized test like the MEEP, they had to uh, 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 have an environment that was conducive to learning. And they would come to school in the morning with no breakfast. That was the norm for them. So I had to con contract with the neighborhood Burger King to uh, supply breakfast for them, and especially during the week they had the MEEP test going on so they could think well. And I just realized we have to have a more holistic, hands-on, interfacing with families approach to education. The bureaucracy we have today doesn't allow for that. And what is going on in America in education, really Detroit is ground zero for everything that's wrong with the education in America. I knew that years ago. But about a year ago, Ernie Duncan, who was Obama's Secretary of Education, was in Detroit. He had a press conference. Here's what he said. Detroit public schools is ground zero for educational problems in America. That's what the Secretary of Education said. So it has to be a model. I know. I don't say it braggadociously. I say it with all the humility I can muster up. But I know I'm called to be a standard to change that. I know it like I know my name. I know it like I know my name. And you'll be hearing about this. Because we have to change. The second R is redemption. We're buying children back from a system that has failed them. We used to say there are cracks you know, in the system. Oh, no. These are gaping holes. And it's gotten so political. A friend of mine years ago, his name is Clark Durant. I was serving on the board with him at Cornerstone Schools. He was elected president of the State Board of Education. Marie and I were in a restaurant in Gross Point. He comes over to our table, scoots me over and says, look at this. This is the law for Michigan's education. It's centered around two things, politics and economics. 
not children learning. That has to change. The last thing is rewards. Children must know there's a prize at the end of their academic rainbow. So I'm called to deal with that. Now, you have unique callings in this room. I mean, skills, giftings, callings. And you've been sent to this church. As I'm closing, I'm not done. I'm just stopping. John chapter 1. The Bible says there was a man sent from God, and his name was John. It didn't say there was a man of God whose name was John. It says in that context, though we know John was a man of God, in that context it says there was a man sent from God. You've got to see yourself as a man or a woman sent from God. You're not here just to be a happy-go-lucky, you know, Christian that goes to Christ. No, you're, you're sitting here with a mandate. You have an assignment. There's a grace upon your life. Whatever you do, whatever you do, do not die until you fulfill that. There was a man. Stand to your feet with me. I want you to make some room for yourself. You're going to do a quick exercise, then we're going to be done. So... I don't want you to hit anybody, so make some room to move around. And just like John 1 says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. You're going to say there was a man or woman sent from God, and his or her name was, and you're going to say your name. You're going to do this loud, with an attitude, like you mean it. Like you want to make sure the devil and every demon understands this? Now, I'm going to do something a little different this time. Make a fist like this with your left hand. Take your right hand with a fist like this. When you say your name, you're going to be like this. Like I'm going to illustrate for you. There was a man sent from God, and his name was Ellis. And I'm going to hit my hand, my fist. On my other fist, real strong or real hard when I say my name. This isn't just something you're saying. You're declaring this. You've been sent to this house. You've been assigned to this region. This is your calling. This is your life. This ain't church as usual. You're on a kingdom assignment. This is a kingdom-minded church. Are you ready? Are you going to say this like you mean it? Say it with an attitude. There was a man. That was too weak, y'all. Y'all got to say this with an attitude. All right? One more time. There was a man sent from God. And his name was. Whoa. Oh. That has never happened before. Where the congregation boldly proclaimed. As an individual, you're sent from God and you released your name on a prophetic apostolic assignment. Didn't that feel good? Didn't that feel good? I want you to do it one more time then. Then we're going to close. There was a man sent from God. And his name was. Glory. Shout hallelujah. Father, I seal this word. 
I pray it's minister life to your people, and I declare and decree Christ Community Church will never again be the same. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Hallelujah.